This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're gonna be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you gonna get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Frank and Oak. Frank and Oak have this new style plan thing. It's one of these clothing subscription services for men or for women. The plus of that is that you don't have to go through like an endless catalog online selecting your clothes. But what I didn't like about previous subscription services is that you didn't have control over what came and your option was only to send back stuff you didn't like and you would forget to do that. They have basically solved this problem because you fill out a little style questionnaire, they figure out your style, and then you shop from a limited selection of things every month that is designed for you. So you still get to choose what you get, but choosing is kind of pleasant and you'll find that you like the stuff that they're offering you. If you are a listener of the show, you get $30 off Frank and Oak's style plan. Automate your style. It's the easiest and smartest way to shop for new clothing. And there's 25% off everything in addition to the 30 bucks you're going to get off your first month. Go to www.frankandoak.com slash invite slash Canada land. Once again, frankandoak.com slash invite slash Canada land. Tom Hennifer, executive director of Canadian journalists for free expression. We've heard from you before in other contexts, but it's your first time here on Shortcuts. Welcome. Yeah, I've been, I've been wondering when you were going to invite me to do this. <laughs> today is the day. We are going to talk today about Justin Trudeau's Vice Media Pot Conference. We're mm -hmm. going to talk about press freedom in Canada, third year in a row that we've lost rankings. We're plummeting in those charts all at the same time that we have this new press shield law. We'll talk about all that. You know what? There is a bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about. I just like, this will be like duly noted lightning round the episode. Yeah, I could talk for hours about all of the problems our society has right now. <laughs> some weeks it's a struggle to find the three or four things for the show, and sometimes I need like two shows. We'll see how much we can cover. Welcome to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Jill Cameron, Wayne Arod, Hinkle Jung, Sarah Legault, Dan Kennedy, Julie J, Ciara Singer, and Christina Kay. Christina, why did you decide to be awesome? Uh, because a critical look at Canadian media is not only valuable, it's essential. And this episode is brought to you by Amnesty International, Canada. 
whether it is documenting human rights abuses abroad, campaigning for LGBTQ rights and gender equality in Canada, or mobilizing thousands of supporters to free political prisoners, Amnesty International has been a leading voice for the protection of human rights for over 60 years, and right now they are leading a global call for investigation of war crimes in Syria. Hospitals, schools, and civilians, none of them have been spared in this brutal conflict. And the deadly chemical attacks this month have been yet another example of the clear need to hold those responsible to account. Add your voice to the call for justice and accountability in Syria. Visit amnesty.ca slash CanadaLand. That is amnesty.ca slash CanadaLand. It takes a second. It's worth it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Okay, let's start by talking about, I don't know where to begin with this topic. There's like so many facets to it. But today, I guess, Reporters Without Borders released their annual rankings of which countries suck most for journalists. Yeah, and Canada dropped another two spots. We're now out of the top 20. It's funny, you know, we we have a really close relationship with RSF and I've been speaking with them and I've been telling them how bad things are in this country. You know, we have... So- terrible concentration of media ownership. We've got journalists who are facing jail time and we've got an access to information system that's completely fallen apart. Canada is not doing well. Trudeau came in talking big about how he was going to support press freedom. And now we've got two journalists both facing potentially lengthy jail terms. So, hey, hey, 
We respect reporters here. They ask the <laughs> tough questions. I, when, when he said that, I'm like, save that clip. That clip is going to come in handy. Did we draw up two spots or four? It was, I have here. Oh, a four. Yeah, I think you're right. Four. Third year in a row. We were the number eight in the world for press yeah. freedom in 2015. We dropped 10 spots in 2016. Okay. Harper effect. Yeah. And then we dropped four more spots. Yes. In this regime of like a complete breakdown of ATIP and the RCMP and elsewhere, journalists being spied on, journalists uh, facing jail time, as you say. Your job at CJFE, I guess, has never been harder. Again, we have the face of this administration and then the reality, I guess. Yeah, we dropped to 22nd. That's why I got the two and the four mixed up. But ah. the, the government does not recognize this stuff. Like I was in front of the Senate committee that's dealing with this new press shield law that just passed in the Senate um, that we've been working with uh, Senator uh, Claude Carignan and Andre Pratt to get through. And when I was talking there, you know, they were saying, why do we need that? We don't need a press shield law. Why do we need a press shield law? The spying on journalists is a, it's a Quebec problem. And there's no problem with this federally. Meanwhile, we've got... And Maku, who could potentially face jail time. We've got Justin Brake in Newfoundland, who just was a brave journalist, just doing his job and ended up getting arrested for it. This is something that every other developed nation in the world, including Trump's America, 37 states in the United States have press shield laws and Canada is lagging way behind. And yet here we go. We drop another four spot. It's not unexpected, but it's it's no less tragic. OK, I want to talk about this press shield law. We were the first to report on this. And uh, our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, put it on Facebook saying the Senate has done something unambiguously good. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure he was right about that for reasons I'm going to get to in a second. First, we should tell people like what it is. And basically, this would enshrine into law protections for journalists. And you'll correct me when I get the details of this wrong. In two instances, one is when the cops want to spy on journalists Mm. that could not be decided at a lower court level as it was in Quebec. It would have to go up to- Not even with a court. In Quebec, it was just justices of the peace. Right. Like people who don't even necessarily have a legal background, essentially rubber stamping. So as a result of this press shield law, who makes that decision? Potentially, it would change, and I believe it would be so that there are uh, prosecutors would have to sign off on it as well, and then an actual judge as opposed to a justice. Okay, of the and, and this would be warranted, and there would be court oversight, and they would have to basically prove that there's no other way to get the information. Essentially, yeah. And then the other instance is when a journalist is called to testify in court, they could invoke this press shield law to say, I'm sorry, I can't give up my sources here. Yeah. And then again, there's still some wiggle room for the courts if it's the only way to get the information and if they can prove that there is a greater need for the the courts to have this information than there is for you know there to be sanctity of the press yeah. then there's still a way that this could be pried from journalists but it would be harder yeah, pretty much. Essentially, the the elevator pitch is that a journalist would not be compelled by law enforcement to give up a confidential source, uh-huh. but only a confidential source, which means that in an instance like with Ben, where the source was not confidential, but the RCMP was going after all of his notes that weren't published, this law wouldn't protect him. This law actually, funnily enough, does not really give that much more protection. It's fairly weak the way that it's worded, but it's an important symbolic victory. Laws like this, the way that they function is they often, you know, there's a chill on journalism in this country right now because sources are afraid to talk to journalists because they're being spied on. They're being compelled to release their notes. Those types of things cause sources to drop and makes it harder to do journalism. But by having this law passed, it'll be a very important symbolic victory that will help to chill, cool off the police aggression towards journalists. The idea is it reverses the chill. It basically tells cops, like, fuck off. Back off. off. Back off from journalists. Here's my problem with it. My understanding of how I operate and how this field operates, how journalists operate, is that the legal regime that allows us to do our work 
is essentially the charter mm-hmm. and that we are operating under the same rights to free expression that anybody has. There's mm-hmm. no special journalist category in law that gives us greater powers of free speech, greater powers to tell the truth without Except in very specific instances. I know like that they're, the, yeah. yeah, so, yeah fair I'm, dealing in terms of uh, libel laws, journalists have a slight protection on. But Well, yeah, I, I guess under, under the fair comment defense, but that could be invoked by a citizen. Sorry, it's not fair comment. It's that a journalist, it's due diligence. If a journalist has done all of their due diligence under libel law and they still got it wrong, then they get some protection under law as a journalist. But that's this is nickel and diming. That's that's one very specific. Yeah, it is. And I'm actually curious if, if that wouldn't be available, I guess. And the thing is that that's such a new thing that I don't know if there's if there's case history. Like, could it, it could be to someone who's reported on like, you know, before I put this on my Facebook journalist. post, I did my due diligence. I tried to make Possibly, sure- Possibly, yeah. As I understand the wording of it, there's nothing in there that designates, and this is the detail that I'm hung up on, is that I'm very hyper attuned to anything in law that designates who is a journalist and who isn't, because yes. then essentially you create a category of state-approved journalists, and that is a hazard that this bill walked right into. An earlier version of this legislation- tried to define this as broadly as possible, said a journalist means a person who contributes directly, either regularly or occasionally, to the collection, writing, or production of information for decimation by the media or anyone who assists such a person. Mm -hmm. That is incredibly broad, right? And we tried to get that, when I testified in front of the Senate, we tried to get that definition even broader. Right. Anybody who says, look, yeah, I I wanted to expose what was happening. Exactly. I I did so on my Facebook page, but I was absolutely a person. I was contributing directly to collecting, writing, and producing information for decimation by the media. Mm -hmm. So I'm a journalist. Yeah. And that was since adapted to include only professional journalists. It was constrained. Career journalists. And then there's some weird way that they try to cover freelancers and people who are like working on pitch stories that were not previously assigned. They're trying to include like occasional because everybody these yeah. days is either coming up through that or doing that kind of work on the side. But essentially that is the danger. And this one actually has me really in a pickle because I'm like, well, on the one hand, this is being resoundingly celebrated by all journalists because it gives us more latitude to do our work. And yet I wonder if this, and I'm not trying to make a symbolic argument. I actually wonder if this is going to be more harmful than good. No, it's a legitimate concern. And I mean, I wouldn't say that this is roundly celebrated by all journalists. Even people on uh, our Canadian Issues Committee is is the one that deals with issues like this. And we had people who are quite outspoken saying that they didn't want this law specifically for those reasons. Uh Ultimately, the committee voted that uh, we did want to support the law because the lawyers that we're involved with and that I consult with feel that Yes, there's a possibility that it could be interpreted that way, but that that that's a fairly small risk because ultimately this law is up to interpretation by the courts. That's how it's applied. And the sense is that they're going to interpret this in a way that is broad enough that it won't be too much of a problem. That said, it certainly could still be a problem. Uh, we do not want the government dictating who is or who is not a journalist. Mm-hmm. And this law, in that sense, it is awkwardly worded, but it still is a net benefit and the the potential risk of this in terms of the way the courts are interpreting it our senses and the lawyers that we work with are their senses that this will be broadly interpreted enough that it will be a net benefit for journalism in this country is it going to pass the fact that it passed in the house is you know <laughs> that's that or in the in the senate i mean 
is huge. Like yeah. that's, it's really hard it's to weird. get a, yeah, it's weird. But there is a lot, there was a lot of support for that. In Liberal Caucus, we've heard that there's a ton of support of that from the, the MPs that we talked to. But that said, we've also heard that the ministers whose jurisdiction this would fall under, like Jody Wilson-Raybould, have asked some really, really difficult, tough questions. So it seems like there might be some resistance to this in cabinet. And we know that the OPP, the RCMP, the spy agencies, they do not like this law and they'll be lobbying against it. So, I mean, it comes down to what the government wants. It it depends on what cabinet and what Trudeau wants, whether they actually truly believe in press freedom like Trudeau says he does or whether they're going to put other priorities ahead of that and hurt our democracy as a result. Okay, that's a good point because some of the things that we pointed to earlier as to under Trudeau, how things have gotten worse for, for the press, he could probably claim, well, I didn't do that. Yeah. This is one where it's directly like, this This could be easily smacked down by the liberals or it could easily sail through. And, yeah. that, and that's going to be about his will. Trudeau is the one who's going to determine whether this bill passes or not. Yeah. He, he will instruct his cabinet and his caucus to vote for it or not vote for it. So it all comes down to what the prime minister wants. And I mean, a big part of who has his ear are law enforcement. So I think that if this law does not pass, it comes down to the fact that the government is listening to law enforcement over the citizens and over the journalists. Okay, so you were in a photograph where Mohammed Fahmy was talking about press freedom, mm-hmm. and there was a picture of you and Mohammed and Ben Maku and Patrick Lagasse, who was spied on. And these are people who I think unambiguously are victims of strictures against the press, and they're sort of today's poster guys of uh, mm-hmm. the fight for journalistic freedom. But the fight for free expression often means championing really unpleasant people and unpleasant ideas. And we had reporters at this, what the hell was it? This this hearing into your yes, war. Quasi-judicial hearing. Yeah. There's some strange procedure to find out if this, I guess, Nazi newspaper, this this absolutely virulently it's, it's disgusting. It's not an inaccurate way to describe it. It's a racist newspaper, which Canada Post uh, has been prohibited to distribute. And they're fighting that. And there's all kinds of interveners involved in this. My take on this is that I, I actually support their right to say whatever disgusting thing they want to say, but I don't want it delivered to my house without my permission. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any problem with Canada Post ceasing to do that or being prohibited from doing that. Where does CGFE stand on this Your Ward News thing? I just, while you're here, I want to know. <laughs> I had a friend show me Your Ward News probably three or four years ago. And I was like, oh, Jesus, I can't wait for these guys to start coming to us. Because we do get organizations like that who are really on the fringes spreading hate who will come to CGFE and ask us to support them in one way or another. I have no interest in supporting this straight up racist hate mongering rag. In terms of, and I completely agree, they have the right to put their opinions out there. If it is criminal hate speech, then the criminal justice system needs to deal with that, plain and simple, uh, for whatever they post on the internet. And I fully agree that postal workers also have a right to not be delivering. If a Jewish postal worker doesn't want to deliver this incredibly anti-Semitic rag that people don't want delivered to their house... They also have a right not to do that. But CJFE officially as an organization, we did write, we're actually, I think, listed as interveners on the case, which is strange because we didn't request that status, but we did write the minister just essentially to say that the way that she intervened in this, just coming down with this ministerial decree, likely is not the right way to do it because it's strange, it's quasi-judicial, it doesn't you know, have jurisprudence attached to it. So we would like to see this actually handled by the courts. But in terms of how the system works, this is it's odd. Like it's it's a strange way to intervene through Canada Post to have the minister come down like that. This whole 
case the way that it's structured is really strange. Like there isn't even any, any evidence being presented yet and there won't be for a few months. It's all procedural. It's going to take a long time. Right and, and and it's something that hasn't been done in months or years. Yeah, like since 1981, apparently. Yeah. And the thing is that this ministerial decree likely will not hold up to charter scrutiny. So, well, there's a good chance it'll be struck down. So I, we would, I completely agree that uh, your word news should not be being delivered through Canada Post, that postal workers shouldn't be forced to do this. People shouldn't be forced to have it at their homes if they're not That's asking. The Thing, I think. Yeah, that is that is a violation of of their rights. So there is a way to stop it. There's got to be a more legitimate way to stop this. I'm not an expert in how Canada Post works, unfortunately, so I I don't know exactly how that has to happen. But yeah, we we certainly don't support your word news. They have the right to say things online on various different platforms. They do not have the right to invade people's houses uh, with their bullshit hate screeds. Okay, if we're talking about Trudeau's will, let's just segue into like, from now on, duly noted. And I just okay. want to briefly note this column that was in the Washington Post yesterday. And before I read it, I just was like, all the right people are scoffing at this, mm. which, you know, they're, they're so dismissive. They're mocking the author. They're mocking the piece. Maybe there's something to it. Do you know the piece I'm talking about? Yeah, the piece by J.J. McCullough saying that Canadian democracy is, is, isn't is so great either. Comparing Canadian democracy to Turkish democracy, essentially. Yeah, and the thing about the criticism that I noted was that a lot of people were attacking him for the headline, which assumedly, you know, you never attack a journalist for the headline, they don't write yeah. them, which was uh, that Canada is not a real democracy. And it's weird for me that a lot of journalists who, like, I've seen say, hey, don't blame me for my headlines, were coming after J.J. for the headline. And then people were coming after him for, like, that's so ridiculous to compare. Trudeau to Erdogan, that that's just like, oh, that's just like breaking out of Hitler, you know, it's the Godwin's law thing. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that that is ridiculous. Let me read the thing. And I read the thing and what he wrote was that Canada has been really, really quick to point a stinky finger at Turkey for putting into place new authoritarian powers that would change the way that democracy is practiced or ceases to be practiced and give a lot more authoritarian rule to Erdogan. And he's saying, well, what about our own system? And then he pointed out just how authoritarian and, and how rarely MPs stray from what the prime minister... It was It was a com- comparison of systems. He was comparing yeah. the Canadian system to the Turkish system. And all of these, you know, be it like Dan Gardner or Alex Boudelier or Justin Ling, tons of people who... And then uh, other people in I, I saw in the academy and in politics just like mocking JJ, which I'll certainly join in on at times. But when when you're shooting the messenger mm-hmm. and no one was actually engaging with the arguments, like I was very ready. I don't know much about how our system compares in terms of prime ministerial authority to other systems. So I was ready to hear somebody tell me why JJ was wrong. Turkey is the, our, outside of Canada, Turkey is a country that we deal with the most. We yeah. are, it's one of our focus countries. We've dealt with a lot of journalists who are in jail there. We've gotten some journalists out of jail who are now back in jail. Turkey is a dictatorship, straight up, plain and simple. Sure. There is no free press in that country. Erdogan has taken over. He has sent one big difference between Canada and Turkey is that Trudeau has never sent the military and police into newsrooms to take over those newsrooms and install his own people in it, whereas Erdogan has. Right. So in that regard, when you just straight up compare it by the headline, yeah, that's a little ridiculous. But again, JJ didn't write that. That said, I can't stand J.J. McCullough. I think he's a troll. I think he's a ridiculous person. I think he's right in this column. Yeah. Uh, in comparing the systems to Turkey, yeah, he's he's those are legitimate comparisons between the systems. Canada and Turkey, Canada is a democracy. Turkey is a dictatorship, plain and simple. There are problems in Canadian democracy that actually do reflect some of the problems in Turkey's system. 
the results are very different, but the comparisons he's drawn are valid. And I mean, it's kind of his own fault because JJ has made such an ass out of himself that no one respects him. And as a result, he gets dismissed immediately. And that's, you know, if he wasn't such an asshole in other times and he wasn't so wrong and so willingly wrong at other points, then maybe people wouldn't be so dismissive of him. But yeah, it's a case of, you know, even a, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So I think in this instance, some of the comparisons in the column certainly are valid. The entire thesis of it, is a, is is a little bit of an unfair comparison, but well, that's more of a substantial criticism of the piece than I have received through all of the mockery uh, yeah. re- reading all of it yesterday. And I think it's actually sort of covered by what he says in the piece. He says, "I'm comparing the systems, not the application, or yeah. something to that effect." That Turkey, in application, is a chauvinistic. It's using the power of the state in all kinds of horrible ways. Mm-hmm. The Canadian system, the prime minister has an incredible amount of power, but is a lot more rational in application and less uh, totalitarianistic. Yeah, but if is, the prime minister chose to be more totalitarian, then uh, you know there. It, in Canada, there's there's not the same checks and balances that we would have in the United States. Yeah, you know, against executive power, uh, Canada really is a it's a top down democracy. The prime minister has ultimate power, way more than the executive in a lot of other countries. So yeah, it's 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 a piece that deserves criticism, but it needs to be a nuanced criticism. I would suggest to you, well, I, I have no problem with polemics. And I take your point that JJ has basically it, like destroyed his own credibility and some of the other things yeah. he said, some of the things he said on this show. That's fine. But I, I might argue that some of the response to him was a very Canadian result of the self-appointed policeman of what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say mm-hmm. or what's what's proper and, and what's on and what's off. And putting somebody in the dummy corner is a way of not engaging with what they have to say. Actually talking about the ways in which our democracy puts too much power and unchecked power into the hands of the prime minister, you know, JJ may be a fool, but he's the only fool who's made that argument recently. Yeah, you know what? And I, I agree. Maybe it takes someone who is so wrong on so many other issues to be willing to come <laughs> forward and point out that we've got some problems here. Because I, I think that that column's useful. It's It would be nice if it was written by someone who hadn't destroyed their own credibility like JJ had. But, you know, the, he's the person who wrote it. You take what you got. Quickly, our other sponsor is FreshBooks. We are right there at tax time. It's a time to reflect on your life as a freelancer, as a small business person. What have you done this past year? What could you be doing better? Where are you selling yourself short? Are you making your own invoices? Can you stand to look in the mirror knowing that you're taking that shortcut? Yes, you're saving a few bucks a month, but At the expense of your time, at the expense of getting paid quicker, FreshBooks is the cloud accounting solution for entrepreneurs and small businesses. It makes life so much easier. It is a stupid breeze to use this thing. You look great. There's like very few, like we're really focused on brand these days. And when you are freelancing for somebody, besides the work itself, your invoice is one of the largest kind of representations of your enterprise. And FreshBooks makes your invoice looks great, which makes you look great. You'll wow your clients with how these invoices look. And you know when your client has looked at them. They can pay you immediately with a credit card. You can file your expenses very simply. You can track your time. It's a no-brainer in the year ahead so that when tax time comes around again, you will not be feeling as miserable as you may be feeling right now. Try it out for free for 30 days. Go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land. You don't need a credit card to try it out. And when you do decide to become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent can you. Jump, wait, can I jump in on this oh, ad? please. Because uh, I got to say, I was a freelancer for years and I just use Word and it was a pain in the ass and it sucked to make invoices. And now that I'm on the other side of it and I have lots of freelancers sending me invoices, when I get a FreshBooks invoice, it gets paid immediately because I can do it with a corporate credit card. And it's like that. 
Whereas with if someone sends me a piece of paper, I got to go through, I got to code it, I got to submit it to get a check put through. FreshBooks, you know, I'm not being paid to do this, but I got to say it's as someone on the other side of it, it's pretty great. Free plug from Tom. Check it out, freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Story in the Globe and Mail that I think escaped a lot of people's attention by Chris Hanna about some stuff he, he learned through some ATIP requests to the Heritage Ministry. Canada 150, of course, mm. big pot of money, half a billion dollars. We've applied for money from them. How'd it go? I don't think we got it. A lot of people didn't get it. There's only an 11% <laughs> success rate for the funds from this one That's fund. actually huge. It's pretty that, good. 11%. Yeah. When you fact, you know, Canadians know how to ask for free money from government, and it's not actually free when you think of the work that goes into these applications. This one fund, $200 million that Melanie Jolie at the Heritage Ministry is uh, administering. Interesting fund. It's there to provide money for community events tours, celebrations throughout the country, but also media projects. And she sort of created these new rules that remove grants from political influence. So the civil service can make their own mm. decisions, but she made an exception for Canada 150 stuff because she knows how politically volatile it is if they fund the wrong thing. So she's got a veto. She can green light or she can veto Canada 150 projects. So what Chris Hannay found is that she turned down a project. The CBC working with a production company, wanted a million bucks for some show called We Are Canada mm -hmm. about entrepreneurs and Ken Dryden and it's all very Canadian. I mean, everybody is sort of like holding their nose and swallowing and like putting a little maple leaf on whatever it is that they normally do in order to get this money. <laughs> so anyhow, that's my take on it. But anyhow, so th they wanted a million bucks and she said no for whatever reason. And then Chris Hannay found this memo that her department's chief public servant, Graham Flack, sent to her lobbying for the CBC on this project. And the argument he made is that the CBC is a major media partner of the Heritage Ministry. Here's a quote to Melanie Jolie from her own civil servant. This is an important project to the CBC, who is also partnering with the department on Canada 150 activities. Okay. So it seems like we have like a smoking gun piece of evidence here that something is happening that shouldn't be happening, which is that the Heritage Ministry's partnership with the CBC in broadcasting a lot of the Canada mm -hmm. 150 stuff and getting the message out, which is, that is the interest of the Heritage Ministry. They are facilitating, they need to keep this relationship with CBC and their civil servant is saying, I know you rejected this TV show, but it's the CBC and they really care about this TV show and we really care about the CBC because they're our partner. And then she approved it for half a million dollars. There's the obvious problem with this that, you know, Peter Van Loan pointed out, which is like, Jesus, we already give the CBC a billion dollars to do exactly this kind of stuff. Yeah. Nation building, Canada, patriotism, TV. That's what they do. Why are we giving them more? Okay, fair enough. But I'm more concerned about this other aspect, which has more reverberations than just this one half a million dollar grant. Because now that we've established that the Heritage Ministry is favoring CBC and that they, they're basically trying to protect the relationship, we get into other stuff that Chris Henne found, which is that many successful applications, many successful applications to this fund had in the application from third parties, not from the CBC, had a letter from CBC employees recommending the project. Like part of your proposal is you'll have somebody recommending the project mm -hmm. in some way. This this was not the CBC at an official level saying, we will broadcast this. Sometimes it was that, but often it was just some random CBC employee saying, hey, I, I'm with the CBC and I think that you should give these people money. 
This is my enduring argument with a lot of the granting to arts organizations and media. People say, you know, it's such a small amount of money that the government gives to these organizations. Why do you quibble with this? It's because I see again and again that a little community of people forms of interconnections and relationships where they figure out how to game it and get their hands on the money. Look, yeah, look. and I can tell you as, as someone who runs an organization that's outside of that little circle of friends, it's it's incredibly frustrating how insular that is. Yeah. The, the way that this money goes out the doors, it's an open secret that you've got to know someone to get the cash a lot of the time. And that's 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 a, a real fucking problem. You know, it, it's, it, it sucks. And I mean, but that said, I love the CBC. I know the production company that they partnered on this one is White Pine Pictures. Big, which big is, production company and it does excellent work in terms of them getting it it's like they're good at getting grants they know who people are there's definitely a problem with nepotism in there but i am for cbc getting all the money that they possibly can that said in this case maybe it'd be better if it was going to some other arts organizations outside of it listen to these other recipients the walrus okay the walrus who we just did an article on their many troubling links to the liberal party Mm. and then you look at just outright puffery in the walrus about Justin Trudeau or other aspects of liberal government, trash talking pieces denigrating Mm -hmm. the NDP while the walrus up and down on their board is connected to the liberal party. And then here they are getting $650,000 for the walrus talks lecture series in some sort of collaboration with the CBC that's going to be broadcast on the CBC. So you're going to think the network of people. Here's another one. Uh, Vox Pop Labs. Remember Vox Pop? Remember when the liberal government put out that dumb survey on electoral reform? Oh, God, yeah. The most insulting survey Canadians have ever had to answer. Yeah. Are you are you a Westminster-style rabbit or <laughs> yeah. a... That was the most ridiculous... Oh, yeah, God, that was so stupid. If you could stupid. be an electoral system in the woods, what would you... Uh, so that was Vox Pop Labs. Yeah. Obviously, they have... And they also have a relationship with CBC. They work with the CBC on their uh, election map thing. So here you've got this company that's got good relationships. They work for the government. They work for the CBC. What do you know? They got $576,000 for some survey. Again, with a CBC stamp of approval in the yeah. application. So there is a lot to look at in not just the projects that got accepted, but I, I also want to take a close look at the projects that got rejected. It doesn't pass a smell test. And I mean, is it, it's it's like, should anyone be surprised that the companies that are well-connected or the people that are connected to the party are getting the money? No. Should we want a better system? Hell Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah, it sucks. That sucks. And it shouldn't be that way. I think that's it. I, I don't think that it's massively illegal. I don't think there's any huge fraud going on here. I think it's just there's too much nepotism in our system. Plain and simple. It sucks for the people who didn't get the money. And then I and I think ultimately it has an effect on the product. I think it comes at the expense of the quality of the stuff that gets made with this money. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Canada 150 is going to be a talk about puffery, right? Like it's going to be a big maple washed celebration uh the funny thing is is that like i've dedicated myself to trolling them uh and trolling the canada 150 hashtag with one mean snarky tweet a day and i thought like oh is this gonna like am i gonna run out of material in making fun of this no <laughs> yeah there's a lot there'll be a lot to be well i mean they've run out of material because like if you're if your job is you're the canada the at canada twitter account and your job is to ballyhoo for canada yeah like you say some things about beavers moose how polite we are sorry about the indigenous genocide and like by day 12 you run out of material and and like they actually have tweets that are about like rainbows like today <laughs> here's a picture of a rainbow in canada like when the light hits the water i haven't seen that i'm gonna have to follow that account i mean canada you know we, we definitely live up to our like polite you know we've got very much tall poppy syndrome like we don't like to be boosters of ourselves and it, it canada deserves to have a little bit of cheerleading 
But it gets a little ridiculous after a certain point. And I mean, when you have like, especially when it comes to indigenous communities that are protesting this whole thing, the idea that Canada is only 150 years old, like those are pretty valid criticisms. Yeah. I think that whatever value there is to this horrible exercise in force-fed patriotism will be that it is... It's triggering more backlash than the actual. Because most people, I think, are just like vaguely aware that there's this Canada yeah. 150. I, I was actually thinking, I was like, oh, I guess it goes up to July 1st. And then it's like, that's that's when it happens. But then I just found out recently that it actually goes from July to till November. Oh, no, no. I'm only doing the tweets till July 1st. <laughs> yeah, but I think the actual programming runs for like almost oh, six God. months. Yeah. I, I, they're, they're sending a red couch on a tour around the country. <laughs> of course they they're are. They're renting a robotic spider from- Didn't Peter Mansbridge do something with that in a field with Justin yeah, Trudeau I, a yeah, few years ago? Yeah, it's the same ago. couch. You know, it's the yeah. Canada couch, I guess. They're, they're, yeah, they're renting a robotic spider and dragon from France. I don't know what that has to do with Canada. I, like from Wild Wild West? Yes. I can confirm that it is the one used in <laughs> the Will Smith vehicle, Wild Wild West. Anyhow, it's it's ludicrous. And I think most people just kind of like, maybe they'll show up to one party and otherwise be vaguely annoyed and not care. But the only thing that's, I think, really useful is that every time they fuck up or gloss something over, somebody's like, no, that didn't happen that way. Or like, excuse me, we're more than 150 years old. Like, yeah. well, It actually is forcing a conversation about some of this mythology. So uh, You know what? That's true. Maybe they've backed into doing a good thing because it's certainly the public backlash against it is, has been very informative and I think has made <laughs> put some important <laughs> issues on the table. Send me some money for this backlash. I am in heavily invested <laughs> in the backlash and the counter-programming. I'm not seeing a cent from the government. Final thing I want to talk to you about today is the Vice Magazine town hall thing with Justin Trudeau on mm-hmm. weed legalization. Did you happen to catch this? I watched parts of it. I read the uh, the five things to pull from it. And, you know, I saw Trudeau talk about getting a joint at the party. And I saw the question that was asked by uh, the guy who uh, was facing uh, a pot charge. And then, you know, the idea, I thought it was like the idea that someone would say, you're legalizing pot, I'm facing a pot charge. Clearly this is not justice. And then Trudeau to answer with, well, my brother faced a pot charge and my father essentially got him off. That's a huge miscarriage of justice and a perfect example of why the government should deprioritize this in policing. The idea that we're still going after people on marijuana charges is insane. And I think it's great that the liberals are legalizing pot. I think that's extremely important. I think that the legislation has some serious problems that they're introducing. But the way that they're doing it, the fact that it's still being policed, that there's still raids on dispensaries, it's crazy. He keeps giving these golden crystal examples. Can be golden and crystal for the sake of this metaphor? It can be. Of the essential problem with Justin Trudeau, which is that when you have a young black man saying, how can you be for legalization and yet stand by while I am facing criminal charges that's going to ruin my chances of ever sitting in your shoes or serving as prime minister? And then he says exactly the thing he should say, which is basically, you're right. The criminalization of marijuana affects different people and different communities differently. I'm a rich guy whose dad was the prime minister. My brother was able to find himself in a situation just like you and have his record completely cleared because of connections and money. So like a complete recognition Mm -hmm. of injustice and unfairness and how it it is something that divides along class and racial lines. And then so what? (laughs) Yeah, and then it's you're right, but I'm not going to do anything about it. But I'm not going to do it. So so it's like, how can you have that moment of like, yeah, you seem really like compassionate and woke and accepting of a lot of nuance in the world. And then 
but fuck you. It's almost better if somebody were to say like, well, you're a criminal and you're going to have to, you should have thought about what you did and you broke the law and the yeah. law is going to change. But you, when you broke it, it was still a law. I would rather have some hard ass conservative line on that than the hip, like just completely bald hypocrisy of that. Well, that's, I mean, that's what the liberals have been known for forever. And the idea that Justin Trudeau was going to come in and change the face of the liberal party is, is, is ridiculous. They're governing the same way they always do. They, they often will say the right thing and then do the wrong thing. And it comes down to something very simple. They're not introducing evidence-based policy. Canadians want evidence-based policy, especially around marijuana. Like it's so obvious, but the liberals are politicizing it. They're falling into that trap just like anyone else. And I mean, maybe they feel they have to because then the conservatives will start hitting them hard with the, you know, the law and order agenda or whatever else. But there is a preponderance of evidence that marijuana should be legalized and that people should not be punished and that people from racial minorities are being disproportionately punished because of this. Everybody knows that. And yet the liberals continue to go on in this politicized way. Wow. They're legalizing. It's amazing. And yet yet you listen to this thing and you watch, I think it was, you know, and I'll disclose that, uh, uh, Victoria Potashnik, the vice producer who did that, is a friend of mine. And then Manisha Krishnan, who's on the show sometimes, uh, interviewed Trudeau. I think she did a great job. They made the most of it. So uh, yeah. good on Vice there. The hypocrisies are multiple because, yes, we're addressing this and it's so progressive that we're legalizing. And yet when I think about my own experience with marijuana, it was in high school. And they, like, who sells who, who sells weed to teenagers? Fucking teenagers sell weed to teenagers. Yeah. So right now, as imperfect as criminalization is, everyone's just doing their thing and it's not really a problem for most people. And I appreciate that that's – I can say that with a certain amount of privilege that other people in different communities are going to feel that that might not be so. But it's going to get worse mm-hmm. because like – once it's legalized, if you sell it to a minor, the penalties are much stiffer, and now it's up to 14 years. So the actual practical application, I, I, I want to deal with the media side of it and not the policy itself, but that's one aspect of it where I just feel like that's all you need to know to know that something's really, really wrong with this. That the people, and he kept just talking about biker gangs and shady people in in stairwells. Was what yeah, and said. when someone says shady people in stairwells, like that is a dog whistle. That that is that is essentially a, a racial thing right there immediately. Yeah. Which is which is just. How can we allow that kind of dialect? And Manisha called him out on it. There was no shady stairwell where I bought my drugs. Yeah. And and it's exactly like this whole think of the children argument. Like when I use medical marijuana, I do. I am a, a horrible insomniac and I take an oral tincture every night when I go to sleep because it allows me to sleep. I buy it from a dispensary where there is a security guard at the door who IDs me when I walk into the door and then they check my ID when I buy it. They are not selling to kids. They have no interest in selling to kids because they know they'll be shut down immediately. The people selling to kids are, like you say, other teenagers. Kids are still going to get access to drugs no matter what happens. But you need to bring in policies to effectively sell this in a safe, regulated environment. They they kept saying, but not for kids, not for kids. Uh, You know, and I appreciate why they have to say that. And yet, because the same type of messaging is around alcohol, the time in my life when I spent the most time around like actual criminal bikers and criminals, like really the shadiest dives was when I was drinking underage because the only places that would serve us were the scummiest bars in Toronto, you know? And like, this is what happens in a prohibition regime. All of this though, 
all of this is incidental to what I really want to talk about here, which is essentially that like it's it's a net win for Vice to talk about weed. It's on brand for them to talk about weed. Mm-hmm. It, it was a net win for Trudeau to come and do that and have that forum. And ultimately, it's everybody's getting into the finer points of this thing, which I will hazard to say that as important as legalization is and all these problems with it. It is not the most important thing happening in Canada, and it is certainly not the most important thing happening when it comes to drugs in Canada. And the thing that I think most highlighted Vice's excellence in this moment was that they regarded that by giving Zoe Dodd the floor to, to ask this question. Well, um, this leads us to Zoe Dodd, who's a Toronto-based harm reduction worker that uh, has a question for you. Hi, thank you. I've been working in the front lines in Toronto, in the downtown east, uh, in harm reduction, supporting people who use drugs for the past 13 years. This is an emergency. This is a national crisis. 1,400 people dying in 16 months is a disaster. It's a national disaster. You are not doing enough. The bodies keep mounting. And yes, we are here about legalization of cannabis, but we need millions of dollars. I am a frontline worker who's not been on her job the last six weeks because people keep dying around me and I am completely traumatized because we don't have the resources to do our work. And it is up to you, Mr. Prime Minister, to find those millions of dollars so we can open those clinics and get access so that more people don't die. And I would say to you that you should look to the model in Portugal. They stopped their overdose epidemic when they decriminalized drugs and they've had that model for 10 years and it's been exceptional and we have models to look at and I would say be brave you talk about the safety of children you talk about the safety of youth it is young people who are dying and it is young people who elected you save their lives too do something seriously do something she was just like vibrating with righteous furor there and God bless her. I mean, for putting him on the spot in that way. She's completely right. One of my best friends, one of his best friends did a hit of cocaine in Vancouver and died because it had fentanyl in it. Yeah. I, it's touched my life too. Through some people I know, like people are dying for occasional recreational weekend drug use, ecstasy use, cocaine use. And part of why this is still like, it is an epidemic. There are mm-hmm. people I've spoken to who said like they've lost like 13 friends. Yeah. So that is going to, of course, touch communities where drug use is more rampant first, but recreational drug use of even hard drugs like that, it stays in the shadows because we're a lot more comfortable talking about our tinctures than like, I'll just say it, this could have killed me, right? There there are opportunities in my life where this might've killed me. Same with probably everyone in the journalism industry in Toronto. (laughs) I don't know how much of a secret that is. Yeah, I don't know how brave it is. Yeah, I'm not boasting either. And this is just something that like, we have to call it what it is. I think that right on, ultimately, a, a legalization beyond marijuana seems to be evidence pointing towards that being the solution. Practically speaking, that is not something that's going to happen right now. Trudeau's response, I think, and this is a quote, uh, it's not a direct quote it's uh i'm paraphrasing he was i think just caught like a deer in the headlights and he stammered and stumbled and had this little smug shit-eating uh unfortunate grim as he tried to deal with this and i think that it's fine for for once i'd like to see a politician say like holy shit you've given me something to think about yeah, that'd be nice. The idea that everyone's got to be so guarded and so on brand all the time. to win the exchange somehow. Yeah, it's, it's infuriating. But I mean, what? It, and it's so disingenuous. And what it comes down to is we've got a fentanyl crisis in this country. Yeah. And even beyond the fentanyl crisis, you know, we had the same thing with really powerful heroin in the 1990s. The government, through its prohibition, is enabling gangs and the black market to flourish. And it's a, a multi-billion dollar industry that's incredibly unsafe, that is leading to people being killed, that is empowering organized crime. 
And we know, again, if people would just look at the evidence-based policy, Bill Blair said something about there not being any evidence that ending prohibition on these types of drug things works, which is complete bullshit. It's worked incredibly well in any country that's done it. Portugal, the drop in organized crime, the drop in drug deaths, the amount of people who they're able to put into streams for recovery is absolutely incredible. And the idea that we still just need to put our hands over our ears and go, ba 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 ba. no, we have to, it's, it's bad. And so we have to make it illegal is just crazy. It doesn't work. And we need to change our drug policy. And everything she said was absolutely right. Yeah, I agree with her. But I also think that like people are dying every day and some days like 13 people die, 16 people die, some people, four people at the same club die. Yeah. So we are in the midst of, of a real serious epidemic that is hitting people at all levels of society. And this is what I, I would have liked to have had happen. I think it still can happen because this is like when I heard her say that, I thought, wow, but what should be done today? And I clicked around for five minutes. And I'm like, oh, well, there is this naloxone, which is uh, rushed through the antidote to a fentanyl overdose. Mm-hmm. is now available in a nasal spray. And then there was a rush to get it out there without a prescription. So I don't fault Trudeau for not having this at his fingertips. But like, wouldn't it be great if he were to come on with a message like tomorrow and say, here's what I'm going to say right now. I don't have any long-term solution, but this is killing people every day. So we are going to hand out free naloxone to every fucking bar, every after-hours club. That's a great idea. Go to your pharmacy. It's free. Just have it on you. It doesn't yeah. mean that you're a drug user. Maybe you'll be around somebody who's doing drugs and needs it. Let's just save some yeah, lives. Yeah, I would love to have naloxone at my house just in case. Just in case because you know you never know what. You might have someone over at a party who goes to your bathroom and then they wind up overdosing because you don't know. And you know what? I don't think that there's going to be any meaningful change on this until some cabinet minister's kid winds up overdosing on fentanyl. That's going to be the thing that triggers this. And that's a fucking tragedy because there's people on the streets. There's people in universities. There's people all over Toronto, all over New Brunswick, where I'm from, all over Vancouver who are dying because of this stuff. And it's preventable. Yeah. Preventable. And the government can do things to fix this. And they're just not doing nearly enough. Thank you, Tom. Okay, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I am on Twitter at Canada Land. Tom, where can people support CJFE? They can go to cjfe.org. We need so much support. All of the work that we do, we can only do through funding from our members and from supporters. We don't get any cash from the government. We barely get any cash from corporations. We need Canadians to support us. There's a real fight on for free expression. And also next week, we're going to have the review of free expression coming out in Canada where we rank government institutions. We rate them based on their performance in terms of free expression, kind of similar to RSF's World Press Freedom Index. People can look out for that on our website. It comes out on World Press Freedom Day, May 3rd. Okay. A lot of people went and subscribed to New York Times or Washington Post after Trump won. What you can do here at home is you can support CJFE. Our website is canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Russell Gregg and Ali Graham. We're selling tickets for a book tour. Check that out. And our book comes out next week. Check it out on Amazon or Indigo. If you like what we do, please support us. Thank you.